0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month we're going to hear A Father-to-Be by Saul Bellow, which was published in The New Yorker in January of 1955.
1: The notion that all were under pressure and affliction, instead of saddening him, had the opposite influence. It put him in a wonderful mood. It was extraordinary how happy he became, and in addition, clear-sighted.
0: The story was chosen by Camille Bordas, whose novel, How to Behave in a Crowd, was published in 2017. Hi, Camille. Hi, Deborah. So, when did you first read Saul Bellow? I probably
1: first read Saul Bellow after I moved to Chicago, so it would have been around 2012 or 2013. Not that I didn't know who Saul Bellow was before, but... It was a bit intimidating to me, I think. And um and then uh yeah, I moved to Chicago and I kept hearing his name and um uh, I, I didn't come to his stories until very recently because one of my students um told me yeah, he, he has good stories too. He's not just a novelist. <laughs> um I think I read Humboldt's Gift and then almost all his novels mm-hmm. after
0: that. Yeah. So Humboldt's gift made you want to read the others? Yes, absolutely. What is it that draws you to his writing?
1: I don't know. I mean, it's funny because as a writer, I I wouldn't say I'm against description, but it's definitely something I avoid. (laughs) It's something that I'm not really good at. And so when I see someone do it so exquisitely, um, I I, I fall into a trance and a form of jealousy ensues maybe. But also because (laughs) uh, I think there was all these beautiful lines about Chicago. And I was first moving to Chicago and I was not really enjoying the place at first. And I think just like reading Saul Bellow describe the city with so much heart and like gorgeous prose i mean there was something about how the snow in chicago becomes its own source of light at night and i was like oh my god it's so beautiful and so true i don't know there's something very warm about him it might not be the, the first qualifier that people
0: have for Saul bellow but to me it's just very
1: warm very warm
0: writer mm-hmm. and then when you read all the novels and your student told you to read his stories do the stories do the same thing for you
1: Yes, absolutely. And yeah, and and they're always a bit weird. Like, I never know what to expect. I think that's something I like and that I like also about the stories. You just go with the flow and it's not uh, extremely plot driven. It's yeah, they do the same thing in miniature,
0: Mm -hmm. I would say. When did you first read A Father-to-Be?
1: Two weeks ago. (laughs) (laughs) No, because actually this one is not in the collected stories that I have at home. So I think uh, it's also why I picked it in a way because it's kind of a hidden gem.
0: Yeah, yeah. I wonder why it didn't make the cut. What do you think?
1: Oh, (laughs) I don't, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, it's not, it's weird. I mean, it's definitely not contemporary. Um, I find it actually a bit modern in in the way it talks
0: about gender roles. It's interesting you call it modern because it's both, to my mind, really dated and Mm -hmm. really unexpectedly not. In very different ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the story was published when Bella was thirty nine, so he was relatively early in his career. And some people have said it reads like a kind of preparation for uh, "Seize the Day," the novella. It was it yes, was actually yes, yes. published with "Seize the Day," I think in nineteen fifty six. So I wonder if it's if it's more of a warm up um, or a trying out of a certain certain theme.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's de- I definitely saw that there with the. I don't know. It, it's a question that interests me, um, fatherhood and how fathers see their sons. I don't know why I'm not a man. I'll never be a father. Maybe that's why it interests me. But uh, I don't know. I, and I, I do love Seize the Day. It's a novel I taught here. And uh, not all my students loved it, but I do love it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, so I, I definitely saw the story as somewhat preparatory for Seize the mm-hmm. Day. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we talk some more after the story? And now here's Camille Bordas reading A Father to Be by Saul Bellow. A Father to Be
1: The strangest notions had a way of forcing themselves into Rogan's mind. Just 31, and passable looking with short black hair, small eyes, but a high, open forehead, he was a research chemist, and his mind was generally serious and dependable. But on a snowy Sunday evening, while this stocky man, buttoned to the chin in a Burberry coat and walking in his preposterous gait, feet turned outward was going toward the subway, he fell into a peculiar state. He was on his way to have supper with his fiancée. She had phoned him a short while ago and said, you'd better pick up a few things on the way. What do we need? Some roast beef, for one thing. About a quarter of a pound coming home from my aunt's. Why a quarter of a pound, Joan, said Rogan, deeply annoyed. That's just about enough for one good sandwich. So you have to stop at a Delicatessen. I had no more money. He was about to ask, what happened to the $30 I gave you on Wednesday? But he knew that would not be right. I had to give Phyllis money for the cleaning woman, said Joan. Phyllis, Joan's cousin, was a young divorcee, extremely wealthy. The two women shared an apartment. Roast beef, he said, and what else? Some shampoo, sweetheart. We've used up all the shampoo. And hurry, darling, I've missed you all day. And I've missed you, said Rogan, but to tell the truth, he had been worrying most of the time. He had a younger brother whom he was putting through college and his mother, whose annuity wasn't quite enough in these days of inflation and high taxes, needed money too. Joan had debts he was helping her to pay for she wasn't working. She was looking for something suitable to do. Beautiful, well-educated, aristocratic in her attitude, she couldn't clerk in a dime store. She couldn't model clothes. Rogan thought this made girls vain and stiff and he didn't want her to. She couldn't be a waitress or a cashier. What could she be? Well, something would turn up, and meantime, Rogan hesitated to complain. He paid her bills, the dentist, the department store, the osteopath, the doctor, the psychiatrist. At Christmas, Rogan almost went mad. Joan bought him a velvet smoking jacket with frog fasteners, a beautiful pipe, and a pouch. She bought Phyllis a garnet brooch, an Italian silk umbrella, and a gold cigarette holder. For other friends, she bought Dutch pewter and Swedish glassware. Before she was through, she had spent $500 of Rugen's money. He loved her too much to show his suffering. He believed she had a far better nature than his. She didn't worry about money. She had a marvelous character, always cheerful, and she really didn't need a psychiatrist at all. She went to one because Phyllis did, and it made her curious. She tried too much to keep up with her cousin, whose father had made millions in the rug business. While the woman in the drugstore was wrapping the shampoo bottle, a clear idea suddenly arose in Rogan's thoughts. Money surrounds you in life as the earth does in death. Superimposition is the universal law. Who is free? No one is free. Who has no burdens? Everyone is under pressure. The very rocks, the waters of the earth, beasts, men, children, everyone has some weight to carry. This idea was extremely clear to him at first. Soon it became rather vague, but it had a great effect nevertheless, as if someone had given him a valuable gift, not like the velvet-smoking jacket he couldn't bring himself to wear or the pipe it choked him to smoke. The notion that all were under pressure and affliction, instead of saddening him, had the opposite influence. It put him in a wonderful mood. It was extraordinary how happy he became and, in addition, clear-sighted. His eyes all at once were open to what was around him. He saw with delight how the druggist and the woman who wrapped the shampoo bottle were smiling and flirting, how the lines of worry in her face went over into lines of cheer, and the druggist's receding gums did not hinder his kidding and friendliness. And in the delicatessen, also, it was amazing how much Rogan noted and what happiness it gave him simply to be there. Delicatessens on Sunday night, when all other stores are shut, will overcharge you ferociously, and Rogan would normally have been on guard, but he was not tonight, or scarcely so. Smells of pickle, sausage, mustard, and smoked fish overjoyed him. He pitied the people who would buy the chicken salad and chopped herring. They could do it only because their sight was too dim to see what they were getting. The fat flakes of pepper on the chicken, the soppy herring, mostly vinegar-soaked stale bread. Who would buy them? Late risers, people living alone, waking up in the darkness of the afternoon, finding their refrigerators empty, or people whose gaze was turned inward. The roast beef looked not bad, and Rogan ordered a pound. While the storekeeper was slicing the meat, he yelled at a Puerto Rican kid who was reaching for a bag of chocolate cookies. Hey, you want to pull me down the whole display on yourself? You, Chico, wait half a minute. The storekeeper, though he looked like one of Pantrovilla's bandits, the kind that smeared their enemies with syrup and staked them down on anthills, a man with toad-like eyes and stout hands made to clasp pistols hung around his belly, was not so bad. He was a New York man, thought Rogan, who was from Albany himself, a New York man toughened by every abuse of the city, trained to suspect everyone. But in his own realm, on the board behind the counter, there was justice, even clemency. The Puerto Rican kid wore a complete cowboy outfit, a green hat with white braid, guns, chaps, spurs, boots, and gauntlets, but he couldn't speak any English. Rogan unhooked the cellophane bag of hard circular cookies and gave it to him. The boy tore the cellophane with his teeth and began to chew one of those dry chocolate discs. Rogan recognized his state, the energetic dream of childhood. Once he too had found these dry biscuits delicious. It would have bored him now to eat one. What else would Joan like, Rogan thought fondly. Some strawberries? Give me some frozen strawberries. No, raspberries. She likes those better. And heavy cream. And some rolls, cream cheese, and some of those rubber-looking gherkins. What rubber? Those deep green with eyes. Some ice cream might be in order, too. He tried to think of a compliment, a good comparison, an endearment for Joan when she'd opened the door. What about her complexion? There was really nothing to compare her sweet, small, daring, shapely, timid, defiant, loving face to. How difficult she was and how beautiful— As Rogan went down into the stony, odorous, metallic, captive air of the subway, he was diverted by an unusual confession made by a man to his friend. These were two very tall men, shapeless in their winter clothes, as if their coats concealed suits of chain mail. So, how long have you known me, said one. Twelve years. Well, I have an admission to make, he said. I've decided that I might as well. For years, I've been a heavy drinker. You didn't know. Practically an alcoholic. But his friend was not surprised, and he answered immediately, Yes, I did know. You knew? Impossible. How could you? Why, well, thought Rogan, as if it could be a secret. <sighs> Look at that long, austere, alcohol washed face, that drink ruined nose, the skin by his ears like turkey wattles, and those whiskey saddened eyes. Well, I did know, though. You couldn't have. I can't believe it. He was upset, and his friend didn't seem to want to soothe him. ''But it's all right now,'' he said. ''I've been going to a doctor and taking pills. A new revolutionary Danish discovery. It's a miracle. ''I'm beginning to believe they can cure you of anything and everything. You can't beat the Danes in science. They do everything. They turned a man into a woman.'' ''That isn't how they stop you from drinking, is it?'' ''No, I hope not. This is only like aspirin. It's super aspirin. They call it the aspirin of the future. But if you use it, you have to stop drinking.'' Rogan's illuminated mind asked of itself while the human tides of the subway swayed back and forth and cars linked and transparent like fish bladders raced under the street. How come he thought nobody would know what everybody couldn't help knowing? And as a chemist, he asked himself what kind of compound this new Danish drug might be and started thinking about various inventions of his own. Synthetic albumin, a cigarette that lit itself, a cheaper motor fuel. Ye gods but he needed money, as never before, What was to be done? His mother was growing more and more difficult. On Friday night, she had neglected to cut up his meat for him, and he was hurt. She had sat at the table motionless, with her long-suffering face, severe, and let him cut his own meat, a thing she almost never did. She had always spoiled him and made his brother envy him. But what she expected now? Oh, Lord, how he had to pay, and it had never even occurred to him, formally, that these things might have a price. Seated, one of the passengers, Rogan recovered his calm, happy, even clairvoyant state of mind. To think of money was to think as the world wanted you to think. Then you'd never be your own master. When people said they wouldn't do something for love or money, they meant that love and money were opposite passions and one the enemy of the other. He went on to reflect how little people knew about this, how they slept through life, how small a light the light of consciousness was. Rogan's clean, snub nosed face shone while his heart was torn with joy at these deeper thoughts of our ignorance. You might take this drunkard as an example, who for long years thought his closest friends never suspected he drank. Rogan looked up and down the aisle for this remarkable nightly symbol, but he was gone. However, there was no lack of things to see. There was a small girl with a new white muff. Into the muff a doll's head was sewn, and the child was happy and affectionately vain of it, while her old man, stout and grim, with a huge scowling nose, kept picking her up and resettling her in the seat, as if he were trying to change her into something else. Then another child, led by her mother, boarded the car, and this other child carried the very same doll-faced muff, and this greatly annoyed both parents. The woman, who looked like a difficult, contentious woman, took her daughter away, it seemed to Rogan that each child was in love with its own muff and didn't even see the other, but it was one of his foibles to think he understood the hearts of the little children. A foreign family next engaged his attention. They looked like Central Americans to him. On one side, the mother, quite old, dark faced, white haired, and worn out. On the other, a son with the whitened porous hands of a dishwasher. But what was the dwarf who sat between them? A son or a daughter? The hair was long and wavy and the cheeks smooth, but the shirt and tie were masculine. The overcoat was feminine, but the shoes... The shoes were a puzzle, a pair of brown oxfords with an outer seam like a man's, but baby Louis eels like a woman's. A plain toe like a man's, but a strap across the instep like a woman's. No stockings. That didn't help much. The dwarf's fingers were beringed, but without a wedding band. There were small grim dents in the cheeks. The eyes were puffy and concealed, but Rogan did not doubt that they could reveal strange things if they chose, and that this was a creature of remarkable understanding. He had for many years owned Delamar's Memoirs of a Midget. Now he took a resolve. He would read it. As soon as he had decided, he was free from his consuming curiosity as to the dwarf's sex, and was able to look at the person who sat beside him. Thoughts very often grow fertile in the subway because of the motion, the great company, the subtlety of the right estate as he rattles under streets and rivers, under the foundations of great buildings, and Rogan's mind had already been strangely stimulated. Clasping the bag of groceries from which there rose odors of bread and pickle spice, he was following a train of reflections, first about the chemistry of sex determination, the X and Y chromosomes, hereditary linkages, the uterus, afterward about his brother as a tax exemption. He recalled two dreams of the night before. In one, an undertaker had offered to cut his hair, and he had refused. In another, he had been carrying a woman on his head. Sad dreams both, very sad. Which was the woman, Joan or mother? And the undertaker, his lawyer? He gave a deep sigh and by force of habit began to put together his synthetic albumen that was to revolutionize the entire egg industry. Meanwhile, he had not interrupted his examination of the passengers and had fallen into a study of the man next to him. This was a man whom he had never in his life seen before, but with whom he now suddenly felt linked through all existence. He was middle-aged, sturdy, with clear skin and blue eyes. His hands were clean, well-formed, but Rogan did not approve of them. The coat he wore was a fairly expensive blue check, such as Rogan would never have chosen for himself. He would not have worn blue suede shoes either, or such a faultless hat, a cumbersome felt animal of a hat, encircled by a high, fat ribbon. There are all kinds of dandies, not all of them are of the flaunting kind. Some are dandies of respectability, and Rogan's fellow passenger was one of these. His straight-nosed profile was handsome, yet he had betrayed his gift, for he was flat-looking. But in his flat way, he seemed to warn people that he wanted no difficulties with them, he wanted nothing to do with them. Wearing such blue suede shoes, he could not afford to have people treading on his feet, and he seemed to draw about himself a circle of privilege, notifying all others to mind their own business and let him read his paper. He was holding a tribune, and perhaps it would be overstatement to say that he was reading. He was holding it. His clear skin and blue eyes, his straight and purely Roman nose, even the way he sat, all strongly suggested one person to Rogan. Joan. He tried to escape the comparison, but it couldn't be helped. This man not only looked like Joan's father, whom Rogan detested, he looked like Joan herself. Forty years hence, a son of hers, provided she had one, might be like this. A son of hers? Of such a son, he himself, Rogan, would be the father. Lacking in dominant traits as compared with Joan, his heritage would not appear. Probably the children would resemble her. Yes, think, forty years ahead, and a man like this who sat by him knee-to-knee in the hurtling car among their fellow creatures, unconscious participants in a sort of great carnival of transit, such a man would carry forward what had been Rogan. This was why he felt bound to him through all existence. What were forty years reckoned against eternity? Forty years were gone, and he was gazing at his own son. Here he was. Rogan was frightened and moved. "'My son, my son,' he said to himself." and the pity of it almost made him burst into tears. The holy and frightful work of the masters of life and death brought this about. We were their instruments. We worked toward ends we thought were our own, but no, the whole thing was so unjust. To suffer, to labor, to toil and force your way through the spikes of life, to crawl through its darkest caverns, to push through the worst, to struggle under the weight of economy, to make money, only to become the father of a fourth-rate man of the world like this. So flat-looking, with his ordinary, clean-rosy, uninteresting, self-satisfied, fundamentally bourgeois face. What a curse to have a dull son. A son like this, who could never understand his father. They had absolutely nothing, but nothing in common, he and this neat, chubby blue-eyed man. He was so pleased, thought Rogan, with all he owned, and all he did, and all he was, that he could hardly unfasten his lip. Look at that lip, sticking up at the tip, like a little thorn or egg-tooth. He wouldn't give anyone the time of day. Would this perhaps be general 40 years from now? Would personalities be chillier as the world aged and grew colder? The inhumanity of the next generation incensed Rogan. Father and son had no sign to make to each other. Terrible, inhuman. What a vision of existence it gave him. Man's personal aims were nothing, illusion. The life force occupied each of us in turn in its progress toward its own fulfillment, trampling on our individual humanity, using us for its own ends like mere dinosaurs or bees, exploiting love heartlessly, making us engage in the social process, labor, struggle for money, and submit to the law of pressure, the universal law of layers, superimposition. What the blazes am I getting into, Rogan thought. To be the father of a throwback to her father. The image of this white-haired, gross, peevish old man with his ugly, selfish blue eyes revolted Rogan. This was how his grandson would look. Joan, with whom Rogan was now more and more displeased, could not help that. For her, it was inevitable. But did it have to be inevitable for him? Well then, Rogan, you fool, don't be a damn instrument. Get out of the way. But it was too late for this, because he had already experienced the sensation of sitting next to his own son, his son and Joan's. He kept staring at him, waiting for him to say something, but the presumptive son remained coldly silent, though he must have been aware of Rogan's scrutiny. They even got out at the same stop, Sheridan Square. When they stepped to the platform, the man, without even looking at Rogan, went away in a different direction, in his detestable, blue-checked coat, with his rosy, nasty face. The whole thing upset Rogan very badly. When he approached Joan's door and heard Phyllis's little dog Henry barking even before he could knock, his face was very tense. I won't be used, he declared to himself. I have my own right to exist. Joan had better watch out. She had a light way of bypassing grave questions he had given earnest thought to. She always assumed no really disturbing thing would happen. He could not afford the luxury of such a carefree, debonair attitude himself because he had to work hard and earn money so that disturbing things would not happen. Well, at the moment, the situation could not be helped, and he really did not mind the money if he could feel that she was not necessarily the mother of such a son as his subway son or entirely the daughter of that awful, obscene father of hers. After all, Rogan was not himself so much like either of his parents and quite different from his brother. Joan came to the door, wearing one of Phyllis's expensive housecoats. It suited her very well. At first sight of her happy face, Rogan was brushed by the shadow of resemblance. The touch of it was extremely light, almost figmentary, but it made his flesh tremble. She began to kiss him, saying, Oh, my baby, you're covered with snow. Why didn't you wear your hat? It's all over its little head. Her favorite third-person endearment. Well, let me put down this bag of stuff. Let me take off my coat, grumbled Rogan, and escaped from her embrace. Why couldn't she wait making up to him? It's so hot in here. My face is burning. Why do you keep the place at this temperature? And that damn dog keeps barking. If you didn't keep it cooped up, it wouldn't be so spoiled and noisy. Why doesn't anybody ever walk him? Oh, it's not really so hot here. You've just come in from the cold. Don't you think this housecoat fits me better than Phyllis? especially across the hips. She thinks so, too. She may sell it to me. I hope not, Rogan almost exclaimed. She brought a towel to dry the melting snow from his short black hair. The flurry of robbing excited Henry intolerably, and Joan locked him up in the bedroom, where he jumped persistently against the door with a rhythmic sound of claws on the wood. Joan said, Did you bring the shampoo? Here it is. Then I'll wash your hair before dinner. Come. I don't want it washed. Oh, come on, she said, laughing. Her lack of consciousness of guilt amazed him. He did not see how it could be. And the carpeted, furnished, lamplit, curtained room seemed to stand against his vision, so that he felt accusing and angry. His spirit sore and bitter, but it did not seem fitting to say why. Indeed, he began to worry lest the reason for it all slip away from him. They took off his coat and his shirt in the bathroom, and she filled the sink. Rogan was full of his troubled emotions. Now that his chest was bare, he could feel them even more distinctly inside, and he said to himself, I'll have a thing or two to tell her pretty soon. I'm not letting them get away with it. Do you think he was going to tell her, that I alone was made to carry the burden of the whole world on me? Do you think I was born just to be taken advantage of and sacrificed? Do you think I'm just a natural resource, like a coal mine or oil well or fishery or the like?' Remember that I'm a man is no reason why I should be loaded down. I have a soul in me, no bigger or stronger than yours. Take away the externals, like the muscles, deeper voice and so forth, and what remains, a pair of spirits, practically alike. So why shouldn't there also be equality? I can't always be the strong one. Sit here, said Joan, bringing up a kitchen stool to the sink. Your hair's gotten all matted. He sat with his breast against the cool enamel, his chin on the edge of the basin, the green, hot, radiant water reflecting the glass and the tile, and the sweet, cool, fragrant juice of the shampoo poured on his head. She began to wash him. You have the healthiest-looking scalp, she said. It's all pink. He answered, well, it should be white. There must be something wrong with me. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with you, she said, and pressed against him from behind, surrounding him, pouring the water gently over him until it seemed to him that the water came from within him. It was the warm fluid of his own secret loving spirit overflowing into the sink, green and foaming, and the words he had rehearsed he forgot, and his anger at his son-to-be disappeared altogether, and he sighed and said to her from the water-filled hollow of the sink, You always have such wonderful ideas, Joan, you know? You have a kind of instinct, a regular gift.
0: That was Camille Bourdas reading A Father-to-Be by Saul Bello. The story appeared in The New Yorker in January of 1955 and was included in Bellow's collection, Mosby's Memoirs and Other Stories, in 1968. Hi, I'm Deborah Treesman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was gonna go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Camille, all all that literally happens in this story is that a man goes to a deli, takes a train to his fiancé's apartment, and has his hair washed by her. Mm -hmm. Um, All the drama of the story or the plot of the story sort of falls into his internal monologue. How would you describe that plot? What happens?
1: Well, I think, yeah,
0: the story takes
1: place in his head, basically. Um, and I think that's what appealed to me about the story. on my first read is that it, it seems very humble, yet there are like some gigantic issues are tackled, but it all happens within this guy's mind. It's the story of a person's mind over the course of, I don't know, an hour, maybe half an hour, and, yeah, it's interesting to me that this guy's thoughts can just be the propelling force here. And it, it's a very tricky thing to do for a writer. Oftentimes we feel constrained by plot, like something needs to happen. And the, the story doesn't really bother with this because it follows the thoughts, the obsessions, the circularity of thoughts. And, yeah, he's just on his way somewhere thinking things. You know, it's like uh, it's it's this very simple structure in a, in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, very very simple, but at the same time hard to do that, right? I mean, yes. a <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, very hard to make it believable. Also, because like even though it all happens in his head, all, all his thoughts are still cued by his environment. Um, I, I don't know. It seems very natural to me in a way that perhaps stream of consciousness is not, or that other stories that are driven by the protagonist's thoughts can feel a bit artificial at times, but this seemed very true to me because it's always the same thoughts that come back. Um.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He's he's, he's credibly obsessive. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think it's funny how he has these sort of epiphanies throughout the story. That first one being that everything is superimposed or that everyone, dead or alive, is under pressure from some kind of surrounding force carrying some kind of burden... Which is, you know, an interesting thought and one that has a lot of truth to it. But it's not a positive thought. So why does that make him joyful?
1: Well, I, I, I mean, it, it does uh, start the whole story in a way um uh, his eyes all at once open after he realizes, oh, everyone else is miserable, so this is great. <laughs> I mean, it's not a relieving thought, but the idea that we all suffer and that you're not alone, I mean, it's it's the idea of community. We're all in this together. So, I mean, I don't know if it's normal that it's such a happy thought for him, but I, but I understand the sort of lift of pressure for a second.
0: Right. And a moment of feeling at one with the people around him, though he thinks, you know, they're all ignorant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I guess it makes him look at the people around him. and Yes. And that's when we get this kind of series of stories that he tells about yeah. the people around him. I mean, interestingly, because he's a research chemist and not a writer, yeah. but he has a very active writerly imagination.
1: <laughs> yeah. It comes back to chemistry a lot often. But yeah, he observes the flirting and the energy of childhood. It's back and forth between total pressure of life and money and then just the little joys of seeing a kid eating a cookie and a druggist flirting with,
0: you know, the person he works with. Mm -hmm. And then these two little girls with their identical muffs. Yes.
1: (laughs) They're so weird. I I don't even think I noticed it the first time and then I reread the story. I was like, this is so strange. (laughs) I mean, this story is is funny to me. There's a lot of humor in there, yeah, I can picture these angry parents on the subway. I can't believe she has the gall to have the same muff. And yeah, I, I see it.
0: <laughs> um, I mean, yes, as you said, the, the common refrain in his thoughts is money. Mm-hmm. And yes. money's at the heart of his frustration with Joan. Mm-hmm. But it's also, you know, he seems to see every relationship through this financial lens. Mm-hmm. And love is not extricable from money for him because he loves Joan but she costs him so much <laughs> yeah and then he thinks back to his mother and says you know every gesture of love she's ever shown him he mm-hmm. has to pay for now and yeah and, you know his brother's a tax exemption
1: yeah I think he doesn't like this about him like he he's very aware that's how he thinks of people but then I, I don't know there's this moment in the story and I think really on my first read is one of the sentences that really uh, jumped to me um Uh, To think of money was to think as the world wanted you to think. So he kind of fights this impulse all the time. And I think this is what makes the story familiar. I think it disturbs him that it's so front and center in his head, uh, in his mind, Um, because then he he talks about love and money being opposite passions and the enemy of the other. And I do think he loves Jones. So I I think he's really trying to convince himself that it, it shouldn't matter this much and and in that deli scene where he buys everything that he thinks Joan would want, you know, it's very mm-hmm. sweet. And I think he fights it. You know, I, I understand both sides to be stressed by it. And also, well, it's there
0: to be spent. Do you think that money is what's at play in, in his anger at this imaginary son? <sighs>
1: Well, in part,
0: I think, but the
1: story is in the end very quiet about the father-in-law. I think the father-in-law, is like he really hates him. I think there's something that he doesn't say in the story. But yeah, he describes what people wear a lot in the story. So... The fact that he spent so much time on the subway son's coat and shoes, it's, you know, the story is from 1955. Maybe the meaning of all this clothing has been lost over the last <laughs> seven years, but I'm sure at, at the time it was really, you know, it probably meant more than I, I can tell. But yeah, I mean, I think it's also the presumed ignorance. He holds the paper but doesn't read it and how he shuts himself away from the world, uh, even though... Rogan just stares at him. He won't engage, and I think that really infuriates him. He sees the future, and it's horrible. Like, the next generation doesn't know how to interact. and um, It's beyond the sun. It's just, like, the future doesn't look good to him.
0: Um, which is kind of hilarious because he's younger than the man on the train. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, he calls him this dandy of respectability, and he's, he's angry because the man is flat-looking. Mm-hmm. I try to parse that because, you know, I suppose we've just seen a lot of sort of interesting people around and interesting situations that he's Mm -hmm. tried to find some logic for. Mm -hmm. And then he sees this guy and maybe there's nothing to think about in him. (laughs) He's angry at him for being kind of characterless. Yeah. Or just overtly respectable with his blue suede shoes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the mounting rage is, is funny to me because I think rage is funny. So yeah, they had absolutely nothing but nothing in common. I'm like, but how do you know? I mean, you, you haven't talked to the guy. Um, yeah, there, there's some level of anger that I, I may not have access to, but I, I completely accept that because the story again is taking place in, in the guy's head and it doesn't always make sense what we're thinking and uh, the order in which we think it doesn't make much sense either. To me, it's really he sees his father-in-law in in the guy's face and then this whole thought about genes and how his traits are not dominant. And like there's this thought of emasculation in a way that his children won't look like him. I think it's more rage in general than at this guy in particular.
0: Which is kind of amazing because how does he know that his genes aren't (laughs) dominant? You know, why does he assume that? I mean, yeah, I suppose Joan is more aristocratic than him. It's never said in the story. Perhaps he's Jewish and she's not. Mm -hmm. Perhaps there's some kind of social distinction between them that we don't really hear about.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, he talks about dominant traits, and I really do not know very much about genetics, but I I did Google it. And, um, (laughs) you know, there's talk of a Roman nose, and apparently a Roman nose is uh, dominant mhm as as opposed to recessive, but really? then the guy has blue eyes and blue
0: eyes are recessive and not dominant, but hes he's seeing a shadow of Joan and his father in- law in this man's face, and yeah. yeah, yeah, and I suppose perhaps he instills in this unknown guy everything that he doesn't like about Joan and her sort of family heritage, I guess, mm-hmm. yeah, and maybe that's a way of kind of shoving it away from her herself. <laughs> But then, you know, when he gets to her house, he's furious with her for having had this terrible imaginary son. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny because it says, uh, yeah, Joan with whom Rogan was now more and more displeased, except Joan has done nothing. And so, again, like the story keeps being itself. All the action happens in his head and Joan did nothing but... His view of her has changed uh, entirely in a few minutes. I, I found it, again, funny. But then I think there's, like, real love between them. I think that that last scene I, I, I think is beautiful.
0: Yeah. Um, well, he gets there and he's displeased with her. But he's also worried that he's about to forget about all his anger and his misgivings. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> why,
0: why would he want to hold on to them?
1: I think I get angry sometimes and I, I rehearse in my head, everything that makes me right about a situation, and then I, I don't end up saying it. I think that's also, like, one of the qualities of the story is like, it, it shows us different thought processes, and it also addresses the existence of this big box in our head that is the box full of things that we wish we could say but don't. And so there's this whole monologue at the end that he keeps for himself and doesn't say, and I think just by virtue of having it or knowing that it's there, then it just calms his anger Right away, at least it's a process that I recognize in myself. If I do the little paragraph in my head about, you know, how I see the world and something has displeased me, I, I can just keep it there and I don't need to say it, and it's almost like I've resolved it. I don't know. I think he doesn't plan on ever saying this. He's just like sort of rehearsing it, but then he forgets everything once when, when she washes his hair.:
0: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I kind of wonder if he's looking for a way out of the relationship. And here he's found one, or he's created one, invented mm-hmm. one with this imaginary son. Yeah, I
1: really didn't read it that way at all. To be, it's a, it's a real love story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but then yeah, he, gets,
0: he gets there, and he no longer wants a way out, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: What do you think about the two dreams that he remembers on the subway? I mean, oh, <laughs> real life dreams can make no sense, but in in a story, the author has you know, put them there to make sense and and created them. You know, we've got this undertaker who wants to cut his hair and then we've got a woman he has to carry on his head.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. When I read this section when he talks about the dreams and he goes back to, like, sex determination and, again, genetics, XY chromosomes, it's kind of, to me, this paragraph, uh, a condensed version of the story or, like, the story not in miniature. It doesn't have all the beats, but we have him... Salbello Bello shows us his thought process once he's on the train, and it's different than when he's above ground or something because thoughts uh, very often are more fertile underground or something. And so we have this, this zoom on how he thinks like when he's on a train underground, which goes back to the layers and the superimposition thing. Like now mm-hmm. he's underground and there's even maybe more pressure over or on top of his thoughts. So I, I, I kind of saw it as a sort of like a pressure cooker version of -hmm. his thoughts. And so, like, the dreams were more, like, I didn't particularly try to make sense of them. They do make sense in the grand scheme of the story. Like, the woman he carries on his head, Joan or mother, like, you know, like, it's it's fairly
0: straightforward
1: there. Yeah, Yeah. straightforward. The the lawyer, you know, I didn't know he had a lawyer. (laughs) So that's a separate thing. But, yeah, to me it was more like here's, like, a very condensed version of the things that obsess him, and so dreams are also
0: part of it. Yeah. Well, definitely there's something going on with his hair, right? (laughs) Um, Absolutely, yeah. I I don't know if it's like a Samson and Delilah thing or... um, (laughs) Yeah, it is in the first paragraph, yeah. His hair is kind of linked to his manhood or his his power. Mm -hmm. And then someone wanting to cut it, well, that's different from someone wanting to wash it. So why do you think we have this final scene of hair washing? It's almost like Chekhov, you know, that... Yeah, you get the the gun in the first scene. So here we get the shampoo in the first scene, and, <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> someone's going to use it before the end of the story. Um, yeah, why does why does she wash his hair? Why do you think Bellow did that?
1: Well, um, <sighs> yeah, I mean I know there's a, a a lot of tenderness. There's a need for the story to end on this warm note. But it's it's so beautiful to me, like, this last paragraph and the, the warmth of the water and, like, it, it seems to come from within him. And um, I don't know, it's the, the only moment where he doesn't seem overwhelmed by his own thoughts. And also, like, in the beginning of the story, he thinks a lot about how, what kind of compliment he can pay Joan. What can I compare her to? Like, she's hard to describe. She's so perfect. And then, but the end of the story is kind of a great compliment to her. <laughs> um, you always have such wonderful ideas, you know. Like you, you, you know what's you have a gift. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the ending is just that kind of amazing moment of complete physical sensuality that shuts his brain down. You know, yeah. he's been so inside himself and mental, and now he's physical. Mm-hmm. And yeah. just experiencing this maternal warmth, you know. We know he likes to be babied. We we know he wants his <laughs> mother to cut his meat for him when he's thirty one. <laughs> that was
1: like um, perhaps the weirdest line and I mean I don't know how common it was in nineteen fifty five, as you were you were saying, maybe like it, it can feel a bit dated to a contemporary reader's eyes, but like this was the weirdest thing, the the cutting his meat.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know, and that she's withholding motherly care. Yeah, but has she been cutting his meat since forever? I mean, I yeah, guess, I she know. knows he likes he... her to do that. <laughs> 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 and also, with the woman on his head being either his mother or Joan, like there's a sense yeah. that he's sort of trading one one mother for another. Yeah. But uh, what I find the most fascinating moment of the story is that speech he kind of prepares to deliver to Joan about, you know, how unfair it is that he is expected to provide when if you take his muscles away, he's just like the same kind of soul, like he's not any different. Why should he be the one bearing the burdens? And, I mean, I guess I'm assuming that was what you were referring to as the sort of weirdly modern (laughs) moment of the story because not that many men, I assume, in 1955 would have even internally made this pronouncement that they should be the equal of their wives and their wives should bear the same pressures and burdens
1: yeah absolutely yeah because in a way like it's kind of embracing his feminine side it's just like yeah "Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm no different than you but it's true like when I first read the story this particularly struck me this whole paragraph and also I think there's a rhythm to it that really reminded me of um, the words Uh, so that's Sartre's memoir and um, Sartre's memoir ends on a very famous couple of sentences and that has the same structure, which is, uh, if I relegate impossible salvation to the prop room, what remains? A whole man composed of all men and as good as all of them and no better than any. I mean, it's the same idea. Well, except, you know, Sartre uses men and Bello uses just like people. So we're, we're, s- the yeah. we're, we're the same. We're the same. A pair of spirits uh, practically alike. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think it struck me on my first read because I think it's a very... Uh, famous sentence to french ears but yeah applied to a love relationship or a male and female relationship it's different i mean it's it's very strong
0: yeah i feel like there's such a shifting view of women in the story i mean in the first half i think every woman who appears is referred to as difficult mm-hmm. you know yeah. his mother's being difficult jones so difficult mm-hmm. Even the woman, the mother on the subway with the little girl, she seems really difficult. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Um, And so there's sort of a distaste for women. He doesn't like the cousin Joan lives with. He's feeling put off about women and how they behave (laughs) or what they ask of him, I suppose. Um, And then you get the kind of his sort of cry for equality. Yeah. But at the same time, his cry for mothering and nurturing uh-huh. yeah and when he finally gets it at the end that's what calms him down that's what brings him back you know from yeah. this sort of abyss his mind has fallen into yeah
1: yeah i feel it, it won't call i, I feel like this st- if the story continues two minutes later he's again angry about something else <laughs> <laughs> but you know like it's nice that it stops there but i i, I don't think this hair wash is going to solve everything for him but it's it's I almost see it, like, in light of the last monologue that he actually doesn't give to Joan, it's almost like all the women being seen as difficult before, it's almost like he's jealous of them.
0: Because they don't have the same burdens that he does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, not that it excuses his nastiness, but, you know, it's an explanation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, luckily, all of his nastiness is internal.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> it doesn't get expressed. Yeah,
1: yeah he doesn't talk to anyone. I mean, he does, you know, talk about the gherkins as being rubbery. That offence, the Dally guy, but yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is one, one out loud criticism, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I feel in that moment of letting go that, you know, the way it's described, that Joan is surrounding him. Mm-hmm. Um, she's pressing against him. She's pouring the water over him. And you know, it's superimposition, but it's a pleasant one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's instead of the money pressure, he's getting this, you know, maternal loving pressure. And that makes him let go. But you're probably right. He's probably going to be mad again in about <laughs> in a few minutes. Um, one thing about the writing here, I read the story years ago and I hadn't read it in a long time. And then I was reading through it again and noticing these kind of pileups of adjectives. I mean, you yes. talked about him as a descriptive writer, but... What makes a writer have, you know, say, her sweet, small, daring, shapely, timid, defiant, loving face, you know, or or the stony, odorous, metallic, captive air of the subway? It's like, why so many words? Why do we get those pilots? Well,
1: yeah, I think I can sort of... uh I mean, justify it. I don't have to justify anything on behalf of Saul Bellow. But like the, the first one that you quoted, I'm like, OK, it can make sense because that's the part where he's trying to f- find the proper compliment to pay his fiance. And I'm like, well, it's really hard. It sort of makes sense that he would pile all those adjectives because like she's so many things how do I like summarize this in one compliment but right on the heels of that we have the stony odorous metallic you know, like, and right. then I'm like I don't know <laughs> I don't know how to explain that one <laughs> like if I were a teacher in this context I would say pick one pick one which one is it <laughs>
0: <laughs> we get another one with the imaginary son who's
1: yes, ordinary yes, yes.
0: clean rosy uninteresting self-satisfied yeah. fundamentally bourgeois face
1: yeah yeah um, these are hard to read But lists, again, I think lists are funny. In the context of the Subway Sun, the pileup, again, sort of makes sense because it's so, like, he just says any bad word that he can think about.
0: Yeah, he's just flooded with with distaste. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We've all been there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Why do you think he's a, a research chemist with these odd inventions like (laughs) the synthetic albumin and and his self-lighting cigarette and and so on what
1: well it's funny like i'm not sure what he's invented so far because at first it seems like he's invented these things but then he's on the subway and he thinks more about the albumin so i'm like has he actually come up with anything yet or it's all
0: (laughs) yeah i mean it's interesting because it's not entirely clear if rogan is a comic character or a mix of a comic yeah, character yeah. and someone we should take seriously, right? I mean, we yeah. we get that description of him in the beginning and then, like, one of the first things we hear is that he's serious and dependable, but then he has this preposterous gait where he walks with his yeah. feet turned out and all you can think of is, I don't know, Charlie Chaplin? Yes. Like, why <laughs> is he? <laughs> so he's sort of a figure of fun and his crazy flights of... You know, resentment are funny, yeah. But at the same time, I feel like we are supposed to feel for him, right?
1: I mean, yeah, I, I do feel for him, but I, I I do see him as a comic character mostly. And so the the invention part of the story to me these are humorous thing, the self lighting cigarette, and the, also I don't know how well it matches with the research chemist. Is he an inventor or just a researcher? <laughs> you know, it's like, is it like in his spare time, he tries to invent thing to, yeah,
0: it's uh So he can finally make some money. Yeah, yeah.
1: But I find that funny. Like inventors are funny. And <laughs> like that's what he decides to place his energy in is, a, you know, stuff lighting cigarette.
0: Um, I keep coming back to this maternal thing, but there's something mm-hmm. a little bit. Oedipal here that his mother is withholding and Joan isn't and he wants to be babied by her and he doesn't want to have to provide for her. He wants to be able to just kind of relax into this sensuality of warm water being poured over his head, you know, and you can see elements of his attraction to her having to do with not having to bear the burdens of manhood. Yeah. And at the same time, Perhaps that's why he's so angry at the idea of having this ungrateful son, you know, because he will have sacrificed everything to bring this guy up. And here he is on the subway looking smug. (laughs) In any case, he's a father to be. So do we think he's learned anything about fatherhood? (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah, no, I don't think so. As I said, if I am to imagine what goes on in his life after this, it's just like kind of the same stream of thoughts. But at the same time, there are many children in the story and he seems to look at children fondly. Um, the, the, the kid in the shop, the energy of childhood, this is something that he feels, well, not close to anymore because he realizes that he wouldn't like that kind of cookie anymore. It would be boring to him. <laughs> but, you know, like there, there's this thing like he, he... He's curious. He's curious and and the story says he thinks he understands the hearts of little children. So, you know, maybe... If he's as good at understanding little children as he thinks, he can actually raise a son that is not uh, horrible to him.
0: Yeah, that's what's so <laughs> disheartening about his son on the subway, because he, does, he doesn't yeah. understand him. Yeah. <laughs> he has no connection with this guy. Mm-hmm. You won't even look at him.
1: Yeah, it's weird how, how much weight he puts on the physical traits of this guy because he seems to forget that he will have a role to play in his education, which he seems previously, like through all the children character in the story, it doesn't seem uh, crazy to think that he would want to be a good father or like or he would at least be interested in, a, you know, knowing what happens in a child's head. So it's weird to put so much weight onto someone's physical features and not, you know think, oh, but he would also be my son, so he would have listened to me for 40 years and maybe we would have something to talk about.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Camille.
1: All right, thank you so much.
0: Saul Bellow, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1976, was the author of 18 books of fiction, including the novels Henderson the Rain King, Herzog, and Humboldt's Gift, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. He died in 2005 at the age of 89. Camille Bordas is the author of two novels in French and one in English, How to Behave in a Crowd, which came out in 2017. She's been publishing stories in The New Yorker since 2016. You can download more than 170 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On The Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find The Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.